0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. In this class, uh, I've been exploring the Eightfold Path also, as Gil has been doing during this past year. And um, last week I started talking about right concentration and explored how right concentration fits into the overall context of the Eightfold Path. Today I'd like to look at right concentration from another perspective. I think I may spend a few weeks looking at right concentration from various perspectives. The perspective I'd like to explore today is what gets in the way of concentration, and how does... um, how does working with that, exploring that, support concentration? So the, um, the, um, the Buddha talked about five mental energies, I guess we could call them mental energies, that tend to arise as we try to settle our minds down. All right, concentration, wise concentration. We talked last week about some different translations for that term. Uh, one, one version or one translation might be settle, settled mind, the settled mind. And so the, the practice, the meditative practice, encourages a settling of the mind so that it's not no longer quite so busy, so agitated, so reactive, other translations or other ways to express concentration. Concentration, I think, tends to create a a feeling or a sense in the mind, as we hear that term, of narrowing, collapsing uh, focus in our attention. And the concentration in our path has actually a broader feeling to it. Some other words, unification of mind is one way that that experience is expressed. That the mind is collected, another term, collected mind. Settled mind. Composed mind. All various ways to express the experience of the concentrated mind. And as we explore how to compose our minds, how to settle our minds, to collect our minds through various practices, we see these various energies, these five various energies getting in the way. And the five energies the Buddha talked about uh, are they're given the name of the hindrances. And the, hindra- the term hindrances basically because the Buddha says, well, these things hinder our ability to settle the mind. So the five energies are sense desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, or dullness, sleepiness, restlessness and anxiety, and doubt. Working with these energies in our meditation, they will arise. It's not a mistake that they arise. It's uh, it's part of this practice of settling our minds that, you know, we we make the exercise perhaps of trying to stay with the breath, coming back to the breath over and over again. And that simple exercise basically begins to reveal our mind's tendencies of how it wants to scatter, of how it wants to have entertainment, of how it wants to get rid of unpleasant things, of how it gets dull or bored when it's doing something that simple or how it gets restless and wanting to have some fun or how it is confused and like, is this going to do anything for me? All of those are expressions of those five energies. And so it's very normal, very natural that these energies come up. So that's one one way to begin to relate to them. Rather than relating to them as a problem, we relate to them as okay, these energies are being shown. It's not that the meditation creates those habits of mind, those tendencies. It's more that it reveals them through these simple practices. It reveals these tendencies of mind. And so the, hmm, at some point in the last week, I, I used this analogy of this mindfulness practice being kind of like soap in um, washing water. Was that in this room? don't think so. Okay. So um, as we uh, practice mindfulness, essentially the mindfulness begins to... The, the simple practices that we, we play with trying to settle the mind down, it, it, like, it begins to pull out of our hearts and minds the messy stuff like soap when we put soap in the washing the washing water and we put our dirty clothes in that washing water and move it around a little bit so the practice of mindfulness is kind of like moving the clothes in the washing water and the soap is like the mindfulness and the soap it's like the chemistry of soap attracts dirt So it pulls the dirt out of the clothes and into the water. So the water gets all dirty. But we know that it's not a problem that the water gets dirty because it's that the clothes are getting clean. So it's kind of similar in our mindfulness practice. It's like we're bathing our minds with this practice of mindfulness and it tends to draw impurities out. It tends to draw hindrances out bring them into consciousness. The bringing them into consciousness doesn't often feel good. it it, it, uh, It doesn't just draw them into the mind. It actually often pulls them into our bodily experience as well. And so we feel them. We feel them. But we are feeling them consciously. And in that conscious recognition, there's the opportunity for them to be released. Much as the dirty water is released when It's drained and then there's the rinse water that comes. So the uh, practice of mindfulness will tend to pull these difficult states out into our consciousness. And our relationship to that, how we relate to those difficult states is an important part of our meditation practice. If we are frustrated by those states. If we want to get rid of them, if we hate them, if we're angry about them, that's kind of the bringing more of those energies to the practice of working with them. And so learning, in a way, how to relate to these difficult energies with allowing, with kindness, compassion, balance, non-reactivity, this is a big part of our uh, our learning in our meditation practice. And what, what I've seen in my own practice is that when the mind can be allowing non-reactive to these difficult energies, it's very much like that wash water. That the difficulties come out into the context of this non-reactive energy and in that non-reactive, that non-reactive mindfulness they come into the field of non-reactive mindfulness and they uh, release themselves. Now that's, a, that's an expression of how it works when the mind can be non-reactive and that's kind of the direction we find our way towards And yet, we um, are often reactive to these energies, so we have to learn how to work with that too. So working with these difficult energies, um, there are different approaches depending on what our intention in our meditation practice is. Sometimes our intention in our meditation practice is to cultivate this kind of concentration that stabilizes on one experience. This is a a more settled kind of concentration. I talked about this last week, these two kinds of different experiences, two kinds of concentrations cultivated in different ways. So there's the kind of concentration that develops when we just turn our attention to one experience. The breath, for instance. Pay attention to the breath the breath, the breath, coming back to the breath, letting go of anything not the breath, just coming back over and over again, that um, tends to settle the mind. It can settle the mind down and um, results in a very quiet state of mind because the mind has been letting go of other things, it settles on just this experience of breathing, for instance. And it it, uh, it begins to unify with that experience of breathing. And so, mm, other things fall away. A lot of peacefulness, a lot of ease, tranquility happens. So it's a very peaceful, quiet state, that particular kind of concentration. Very helpful kind of uh, state of mind to cultivate in our meditation. It's uh, very supportive for our meditation practice to learn how to cultivate that kind of stability of mind that just stays with one thing. Another form of concentration is much broader. It's uh, not so much that the mind stays with one experience but that the mind stays in the present moment with a changing set of experiences. So the mind is present moment to moment, not reacting to all of the various things that come up. A sound arises, a body sensation arises, a mood, emotion arises. The mind can be very stable with being present for that and is not pulled out into reactivity around all the various experiences. This is a different experience of concentration. It is a form of concentration. The mind also is very stable in the present moment. It's not stable on one object, on one experience, but it's stable to changing experience, non-reactive to changing experience. This is a very different form of concentration, and the practice is more the practice of mindfulness. The practice of just noticing moment after moment. This is what's happening. Sound is happening right now. Pressure is happening right now. Dryness is happening right now. Seeing. Pressure. Coolness. Lightness. Hearing. Just kind of moment after moment, knowing the changing field of experience. In that, the mind gets actually quite tranquil, the mind is tranquil, the uh, tranquil tranquility of non-reactivity. But there's many things happening. So that's more of a practice of mindfulness. And so we can roughly categorize our meditation practices by you know, mindfulness practices on one end, being present for the changing flow of experience, and concentration practices on the other end. Settling, stabilizing the mind on one experience. And then there's a wide range of practices between those two. Some of which very much blend mindfulness and concentration. Perhaps one more on on the mindfulness side or more on the concentration side. So the guided meditation that I offered, having an allowing sense of all experience and keeping a touchstone with the breath, was one of those kind of blended practices. It allowed... Um, the mind to begin to settle with one experience but not push away anything else so in terms of working with these difficult energies if we're doing um, concentration practice the first line of approach of working with these difficult energies is simply first of all to recognize them okay, yep, sense desire has arisen you know we see a fantasy in our mind, and we recognize, oh, yep, that's there. And we see if we can perhaps do this allowing kind of thing. Yep, there's that fantasy, and here's, here's the breath. So that it's not, it's not a pushing away. Anytime we work with these difficult energies, part of the practice is to see if we can find a way to relate to them without a sense of aversion. But a sense of recognizing, yeah, that's not so helpful. That's not such a skillful way to go. So recognizing that these difficult energies have drawbacks to them. That's that's something that we can recognize in working with them. Yeah, okay, that ill will. That tends to lead me down this path of arguing in my mind and getting really angry and agitated. That's not so helpful. So actually reflecting on the drawbacks can be helpful. But in our concentration practice, we t- we, we, the first line of approach of working with these hindrances would be to see if we can just let them go, be in the background, and stay in touch with the breath. And there may be various um, ease, various levels of ease with that. So sometimes those hindrances may be pretty light, pretty easy to just let them be in the background not give them any energy, and just, yep, I'm just going to stay with the breath. And like, yeah, you do your thing over there, I'm not going to pay much attention to you, and just, yep, just stay with the breath. And kind of really feels like that experience is in the background. This is an allowing approach to the hindrance, sense, desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness, doubt. Um, and part of the way that works I mean, when I first heard about this kind of approach, my, my mind was like, well, won't it just like, if it's just in the background, won't it like keep going? Or won't it, I don't know, I just kind of thought it wouldn't work very well to do that. But as I began exploring that practice, what I saw was that when, when it's left in the background and we're actually aware of something else in the foreground, if it's left in the background and we let our minds Um, do what they want to it will tend to loop back to that difficult energy that hindrance and get caught by it again. But if we're consciously bringing our attention to something else in the foreground being mindful moment after moment of the breath and just go yep you're back there I'm I'm not going to bother you just it's as if what's happening is that we've taken the nourishment out of the hindrance and given it to the experience of breathing. And so without giving nourishment or without feeding that hindrance, it loses its power. It begins to weaken. So it begins to slowly let go. So that's, that's one approach. And, and there may be different levels of the strength of that difficulty. Sometimes it might feel like it's more that there uh, yeah that, that that thing is really present it's right there with the breath maybe feels like breathing with that experience so there is that feeling of perhaps agitation in the body and you can be with the breath but it's not that the agitation feels like it's in the background but it feels like it's right there with the breath so that's another way to explore and then it might be that the hindrance is a little stronger um, maybe we can still stay with the breath but it's, it's as if it's kind of in the foreground of our attention and we're just staying in touch with the, uh, the breath as we can. So that's, that's one approach to working with the hindrances in, in concentration practice. As the hindrances get stronger and they do sometimes get really strong um we probably need to turn more directly to them and this is the approach in mindfulness practice when we're doing mindfulness practice we generally the uh instruction in mindfulness practice is just notice what's obvious in the moment when the hindrances arise that's often what's obvious in the moment if anger arises pff, it's pretty obvious in the moment and so that that is our instruction we turn towards what's obvious. Okay, anger is obvious in the moment. That's a form of ill will. How does that manifest? What is that experience? And that's the... That's the approach with mindfulness. We generally in mindfulness don't try to set aside the hindrances and come back to anything because what we're paying attention to is just the flow of changing experience. And the hindrances are part of that flow of changing experience. Just another experience that's arising. Oh, anger's arising right now. Frustrations are arising. Desire is arising. Fantasies are arising. And it may be that simple in terms of just acknowledging meeting. Oh, there's that happening right now. When the mindfulness practice gets strong, it can be very like just that coming out into the wash water and being released. When the, the mindfulness is pretty balanced, like, oh yeah, oh, there's anger. And then, oh, there's something else. Oh, there's something else. On one retreat, I, um, I began to see this happening pretty quickly. I was... Um, I still kind of had this idea that when these things happened, they lasted a long time. I mean, that was my experience in particular with the ill will experience. That was one I got stuck to a lot. And so when it arose, I was like, okay, it's time to settle in. I'm going to be angry for a long time. Okay, how does it feel? And one day, one day I was scraping pots in the kitchen. And uh, while I was scraping the pot, this burst of anger arose. It's like, oh, anger? And then, and and I noticed it. And then the next moment, there was something else. There was the scraping of the pot. And the next moment, there was happiness. It's like, what? (laughs) What is going on? I hadn't had that experience. It hadn't been so familiar to me to have that sense of a burst of an, an emotion like that being known and then released. And so this is one approach in working with the hindrances. We simply recognize them. We don't fight them. We don't resist them. We allow them to come out into that wash water and be drained away. And there are times when that doesn't happen that quickly. So this is the place where when hindrances get stronger in our um, meditation, whether the concentration style of meditation or the mindfulness style of meditation, there is a time to actually turn towards these difficulties to actually begin to explore them more carefully in our experience. And that tends to be, in mindfulness practice, when it's predominant and it's staying predominant. It's there. It, It keeps coming up. Or it feels like it's caught us. We feel caught by that experience. In concentration practice, it may happen that We just cannot stay with our breath whatsoever. It's like that difficult energy has become so strong, it is just not possible to leave that energy in the background and be with the breath. Then we turn towards it. We let go of the agenda in concentration to be with the breath when these difficult energies get strong, and we bring mindfulness practice to those difficult energies. And so this is one of the... um, uh, kind of like a relationship that we develop with our minds that, um, you know, when we have an idea, particularly in concentration practice, in mindfulness practice our agenda is pretty much just meet what's happening and so the arising of the hindrances doesn't come into conflict with that agenda. Unless we have some idea that, well, if I'm being mindful, I shouldn't have these things happening, which we do. We have that idea sometimes. But basically, the instructions in mindfulness practice come right into line with working with the difficult energies that come up. Our agenda in concentration practice is a little different. Our agenda in concentration practice is stay with the breath no matter what. Let go of everything else. And so it can feel a little bit like we failed when a difficult energy comes up and... um, we can't stay with the breath. So here our relationship to that agenda it's really helpful to cult- cultivate a skillful relationship to that agenda of staying with the breath and be willing to let go of that agenda when it's not so helpful. And actually, in turning our mindfulness to the hindrances, turning our mindfulness to these difficult energies that are in the way of the settling, we are cultivating a settling. Concentration actually comes when we let go of things. If we are holding on to an agenda when that's not what's possible in our minds, we're actually agitating our minds. And so the letting go of that agenda in appropriate situations supports the concentration. The turning towards these difficult energies begins to allow the, uh, the difficult energies to be known, to be understood, and to, like in that wash water, get released so that the mind can settle below those difficult energies. And so the concentration, right, concentration can develop by recognizing what gets in the way of concentration. It's actually one of the ways to deepen into concentration rather than by trying to stay with one thing pushing everything else away, let go of what, or explore and release those things that are in the way of concentration, and we find that as those things are released, the state of concentration is almost naturally there. Concentration actually isn't something we do so much as a result of our practice. And that can result by gently easefully staying with one experience, it can result by letting go of what's in the way. Either practicing mindfulness or practicing this more one-pointed attention. So in uh, meeting these energies when they get stronger, I'll just briefly talk about each one of these energies and, and ways to explore them. And then we'll see if... It might make sense to explore these in more depth over the next few weeks, depending on whether there's interest for that. Um, So, the first one sense desire. Sense desire is um, kind of being pulled to pleasant experience. We want to have pleasant experience. We tend, the, the way this pulls us out of settledness, cons, uh, composure, is that we are um, not simply at ease with something pleasant arising in our experience. We have to have more of it. So we get pulled out of our balance to more, 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 and there's a kind of a, a leaning into. The Buddha offered a couple of analogies for um, sense desire. One is that if we had a bowl of water in which we're trying to see our reflection, sense desire is like that bowl of water being laced with beautiful dye colors swirling around in the water. We get entranced by the colors and don't see our reflection. So we're pulled into... The, uh, the prettiness of it. This is, this is very much what happens. We get pulled towards the, the beauty of, or the, the pleasantness, and we don't recognize, what, what the difficulty here is that we're not recognizing in being pulled towards the pleasantness, because we're focused on the pleasantness itself and how great it's going to be when we get that thing or keep that thing. So our mind is constructed basically an idea about how wonderful the future will be when we have this thing. And we are ignoring, not aware of, deluded about the experience of wanting itself, which doesn't feel very good. The experience of wanting itself feels inherently off. It feels imbalanced. That desire for something feels imbalanced. So we um, don't notice that part. When we begin to recognize with mindfulness, one of the key explorations around sense desire is to see if you can let go of the thing you desire. Let go of the attention in the dye in the water. Let go of the attention to that pleasant thing and turn the attention to the experience of the wanting itself. What does it feel like to want something? There, we begin to see the drawbacks of sense desire. We begin to see how we are kind of hooked into this unpleasant state of wanting, and we hadn't even noticed it. The Buddha also used an analogy around sense desire that it's like being in debt, it's like having lovely things. You know, you, you use, uh, you know, Taken out a loan and bought all kinds of wonderful things. So you have what you want. And yet, you don't have it free and clear. You still owe the money. So you have to keep doing, doing, doing to get that money. To keep those pleasant things. So the, um, uh, that's, that's essentially the, uh, the wanting is, is that quality or that feeling of the debt. If we ignore that debt, we are diluting ourselves into putting our happiness into something that, well, if we're in debt, the the, the, loan, the loan agents are going to come and take things away from us if we don't pay our, our debts. And so these, these things that we have, they don't belong to us. And likewise with the sense desire these things that we experience as pleasant don't belong to us instead they're just simply pleasant experience kind of coming through and if we don't try to attach to them but just allow the pleasant it's not about pushing away pleasant it's not about pushing away sensual pleasure it's about letting go of the wanting about releasing that ownership or that sense of uh, mine around the, the pleasure. So pleasure's fine. No problem. Pleasure's fine. But when we attach to it and say, I need this. This has to be in order for me to have happiness. We are setting ourselves up for suffering. So this, uh, this is part of the exploration around sense desire. What are the drawbacks and can we turn towards that experience of desire itself? begins to give us an education. Mindfulness of that experience of sense desire gives the mind an education into just how unpleasant it actually is. So that's um, a little bit about sense desire. Main instruction, let go of the thing we're desiring. Turn towards the experience of wanting itself. How does it feel in the body? is a good way to explore that. Ill will has similar kinds of um, energies. Ill will is if we're pushing things away, we don't like something, something unpleasant in our experience. We tend to be focused on the thing we want to get rid of and not noticing the unpleasantness of the wanting to push away. Again, we're we in a fantasy. It's going to be so great when I get rid of that thing. So we're not noticing the difficult or the unpleasant or the mm, unskillful un, un, nature of the aversion, the ill will itself. The analogies the Buddha used for uh, ill will are um, the... Uh, if we had that bowl of water in which we're trying to see our reflection, that water is boiling. So that brings in the, the image of heat, which often anger, ill will, has a kind of a heated up quality. When we're boiling, we're not settled, we're not composed. We are wanting to do things to get rid of that difficulty that we don't like. again the instruction is very much the same as for sense desire can you take your attention out of the thing you don't like and turn towards the experience itself of the sense of of the ill will what does it feel like to be a human being that doesn't like something that wants to get rid of something often it manifests in the body has sense of heat is an experience i have with that heat pressure just noticing that Another analogy the Buddha used about ill will is, is if it is like we are ill when we're ill we are not able to take in the nourishment that would make us healthy you know, especially if we have some kind of uh, you know, gastrointestinal thing you know, we can't, we can't take in the food that would make us get strong again So we're weak, we lack strength. When we're caught by ill will, you know, we can have a sense of strength. That's one of the paradoxes of it. When we're angry, it can feel like we're really strong and powerful. But we are weakening our minds in that state. We're weakening our um, capacity for that settled, stable mind. ill will. Is there anything more I want to say about ill will? There's so much to say about ill will. but um, hmm. So, um, sloth and torpor. Sleepiness, dullness, another energy that gets in our way with the uh, concentration practice. This one I find actually that with this one and with restlessness, with both of these together, maybe I'll kind of speak about these together a little bit, um, When we we often have a belief that if we're sleepy, if we're dull, it's not possible to meditate. If the mind is restless, jumping all over the place, it's not possible to meditate. So there's a, a kind of a belief that comes into play with these two hindrances. So we, um, we resist them, we fight them. We want to get rid of them. It's often more possible than we think to actually be aware of these energies, to have that sense of letting it be in the background, perhaps, and staying with the, uh, the breath, or to simply be aware of that state itself. There's an analogy I sometimes use that works for both of these hindrances, sleepiness, dullness, and the restlessness. And that is that uh, the mindfulness is kind of like a mirror. You know, the the Buddha's analogy of the bowl of water, the reflective quality of the bowl of water is very much like this analogy. So there's a mirror that reflects things. And uh, mindfulness can reflect anything. It reflects beautiful things, it reflects ugly things, It reflects expansive things. It reflects small things. The mirror is not changed by what it reflects. It simply reflects. And then think about that mirror coated with steam after you've taken a shower in the bathroom. It is perhaps not reflecting what we want it to reflect. We're standing in front of the mirror and we're not seeing the things in the room. But we know that that mirror is doing its job perfectly. It is reflecting every drop of water on the mirror. The mirror itself is not changed by that fog on the mirror. But the mirror may not be doing what we want it to do. Likewise, with both sloth and torpor and restlessness, our minds are often in a state where they're not so capable of doing what we want them to do. They're not so capable of being with the breath. They're not so capable of paying attention to um, sound or other sense experience. But we may find, if we let go of the idea that it's a problem that these states are present, we may find that the mindfulness can perfectly know dullness perfectly no restlessness. Dullness, sleepiness actually has the benefit of um, when we stop resisting it. It feels really good. It's a very pleasant experience. And so in the exploration of dullness and sleepiness when we stop resisting it we get the uh, great experience of relaxed body Pleasant states of mind, and we may be able to actually be aware of that to be to be aware that that 's happening. Let go of an agenda to be attentive to anything in particular, and just can you be with what what is that experience? What is it like to be aware when i 'm sleepy sometimes sometimes we 'll fall asleep, actually, some of these explorations that i 've done um, I will just be with the sleepiness as long as I can, and then I'll drop, and then, okay, let's do it again. The dropping itself wakes me up. So I don't have to fight that. That was actually, it helped. It helped me out that the body dropped. And it would be just like a split second in the course of this meditation. Now maybe you know, like... But how much in that experience is dropping and how much of it is actually awareness. So it's actually quite interesting to explore that state. And there are times where you may just find yourself like this. And then it may be helpful to use some of the antidotes to sleepiness. Open your eyes, stand up, take a walk. Do some of the kind of um, practices that help us to get a little bit more energy. Restlessness doesn't quite have that same quality of feeling good when we meet it. Uh, Often it's a pretty unpleasant experience, even when we're not resisting it. So this one can be more challenging to allow. But again, when the mind is restless, the mind is kind of jumping all over the place, not able to kind of settle on anything, again there's that sense of not being able to do with our minds what we'd like to do. The mind's got its own agenda. It's jumping all over the place. And so it's very hard with that state state of mind to say, oh, stay with the breath. It it can feel like uh, a tension to try to stay with the breath. And so uh, you might find it's possible to actually be with that energetic experience of bounciness. Bounciness in the mind, bounciness in the body. With restlessness, I find it's helpful to allow... It's like, just let it let it get as big as it wants to. Let that restless energy expand to fill the whole room. Sometimes there's a sense in our mindfulness practice when we're trying to be mindful of something. It's like we compress it down and say, oh, I need to pay attention to this. It's like, compress that restlessness down to something this size, then I can pay attention to it. But that compression of restlessness with our awareness actually makes it feel more agitated in a way so allowing it to get really big and not trying to be very precise about what you know about it but just like yeah restlessness is happening okay let it get really big counter to what we might think if we let it get really big it doesn't actually get stronger it gives it more space so that the energy can be more dispersed the energy of that restlessness can be more dispersed and it's, it's a mental shift we can do it with our perception we can have the sense perhaps of rather than the restlessness contained in the whole body just expand the sense to can the restlessness be in the whole room that, that allows more of a um, ease around that state so that it's not quite so unpleasant not quite so difficult I'm going to ignore the analogies for sloth and torpor and restlessness right now and move on to doubt so that we have a little bit of time for some comments and questions afterwards. So doubt um, doubt is the state not just any kind of doubt in this is is a hindrance but doubt about the practices, the teaching, our ability to engage with the teachings. So Doubt is a, a challenging hindrance often because we're not so... It, it, it has so much of a delusive nature that we don't even recognize that doubt is present much of the time when it's present. It catches us with its stories. We believe the stories to be real, to be true. I can't do this practice. Obviously I can't do this practice. Why should I even bother doing this practice? We believe that story and it kind of just stops our practice. It, so doubt is a kind of a... It's a challenging hindrance because it masks itself. And one of my teachers says it often masks itself as wisdom. It sounds like it's such... Wisdom speaking, well, yeah, of course I can't do this practice. Or it might be, sound like wisdom. You know, well, the Buddha taught 2,600 years ago. What can he have to say that would apply to this day and age? It sounds like wisdom. So the part of the key or the, the tool around doubt is to begin to recognize what our particular stories are around doubt. I find... Um, if I find myself thinking about the practice, thinking either about the teachings, the teachers, or my ability to do the practice, there may be doubt present. Sometimes when we're thinking about the teachings, it's like overabundant faith. You know, we've kind of gone off into a a great, you know, oh, this, this practice is so fantastic and the world is going to be great when everybody knows how to meditate and, you know, we can kind of spin off in that direction. That's kind of like um, excessive faith that, that gets us. Doubt has more of a negative connotation. This can't happen. It won't work. I can't do this. These teachers don't know what they're talking about. So if we find ourselves thinking about the practice in those terms, it may be that doubt is present. Simply recognizing doubt, being aware of doubt, is the strongest antidote to doubt. Just knowing, oh, doubt, this is doubt. On one retreat, I found myself caught in this state for a couple of hours of... I can't do this. I can't remember exactly how it manifested. But at some point, I was kind of like, okay, this has been going on for a long time. What's going on here? And I finally thought, oh, this is doubt. Oh, okay, well, if doubt is happening, I guess I practice with that. What does doubt feel like? And when I did that exploration, what I discovered was that there was grief underneath. And when I met that grief the doubt was no longer relevant. So when we can become aware of doubt and ask that question, what does doubt feel like? Often we move to a level below the doubt. It feels like confusion. It feels like um, vulnerability. It will manifest differently in different situations for different people I will offer the analogy that the one of the analogies the Buddha offered for doubt because it points to another kind of doubt that um, sometimes as we learn a variety of meditation tools we can get caught in a place of oh this is what's happening. Maybe I should try loving kindness. And we try loving kindness for about two minutes and well wait a minute, maybe I should try maybe I should try being with the breath. And then we do that for a few minutes and I, wait a minute, maybe I should try opening to a broad awareness. Oh wait, 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 maybe I should try it. and we just like pick up on something for a few minutes and try it and then go, No, 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 let me try something else. So it's kind of this wavering, this vacillation. And the Buddha talked about doubt. One of the analogies he gave for doubt is it's like being lost in the desert or lost in the wilderness. You take a few steps this way and then you second-guess yourself. Oh, that can't be right. You go a few steps that way, oh, that can't be right. Or you go a few steps that way, that can't be right. So you don't have any sense of what's orienting you and you're just kind of wandering, wavering back and forth, vacillating about what to do. So that, if you find yourself in that kind of a space, what I generally find is the most helpful thing is just pick one and stick with it for a while <laughs> instead of second-guessing it. It's like, okay, I don't know what the right thing to do is here, but I'm just going to try this one for the next 30 minutes and see what the consequences are, see what happens. So that's another way that doubt manifests, is this kind of choosing different practices, this wavering, this vacillation. So, um, we have a few minutes for comments, questions. Yeah, and would you use the mic? Yeah, okay. Yeah, there you go.
1: Um, thank you so much for speaking. It's really great, great to be here. Um, yeah, I was just. Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of exciting to hear about the um you know, you were talking about how the it was morning that was under the doubt that you that you um you took a look at it and um yeah, that's happened to me a couple of times um with, with a few things, but it seems like um I almost like kind of stumble on it, you know, but it's it reminds me not not to throw too too many analogies, but it was almost like um picking a lock or something, like mm-hmm. a, and then all of a sudden it was unlocked, you know? Yes. But um, I'm wondering if you could kind of um, describe, is there like a technique <laughs> for um, finding what's under, you
0: know? So, yeah, a technique for finding what's under. Um, it... It's, it's, it's more of a sense of patience in a way. I mean, the, the picking a lock, it does feel like that, you know, that it just it comes apart and it's like, oh, that's what's happening. Um, but we can, having that kind of experience, get a little too involved in a way. It's like, oh, maybe it's this. Oh, let me look. Let me see. Let me see if I can find something. What is it? When we are getting involved in that kind of, a, um, of an exploration around looking underneath we're often bringing our preconceived ideas to what might be there. And um, that's a little bit... uh, I was going to use the word dangerous. That's a strong word, but I can't think of a softer word. It's a little bit dangerous in that when we have any kind of an idea about what might be there, we can almost always find it. Um, and so rather when we are doing this kind of investigation if we have some ideas about what might be there really helpful to hold those lightly like okay maybe there is this thing underneath I've seen this kind of thing a lot underneath so um, maybe it's there but the, the, the main technique I found helpful is kind of taking a step back what else is happening here having a broader sense and kind of curiosity. What else is going on? And maybe even using that as a question. What else is happening here? And allow yourself not to look for it, but more to be surprised perhaps. It's kind of like ringing a doorbell and then seeing what answers the door as opposed to knowing what's going to be on the other side of the door, anticipating what's going to be on the other side of the door. What else is happening right now? When I've approached it from that perspective... I was I was um, exploring one particular state of mind around depression at one point, and this is going to be the very short version of this story. I was approach I was exploring depression, and had some ideas about what was underneath it. All kinds of history from my life of you know having had difficulty having friends and being left out, and all kinds of that stuff was in my mind as a part of what was underneath there, and. I, so I noticed that, that I had that kind of sense that, okay, those things might be underneath there. But it was just more, okay, what's here? What's here? What's here? And at some point what was revealed underneath was love. And it was kind of, the depression was around a skewed relationship to love. Because actually, in the moment I saw that feeling of love, it was, it was amazing, actually. The feeling of depression had expanded. I had gotten to the place where it's like, oh yeah, there's the depression. Okay, it can get really big. I don't have to fight that depression. And it was like that depression flipped and there was this expansive feeling of love. It was so beautiful. It was so amazing. And the next thought that came into my mind is, this is sappy. <laughs> oh, okay, there's a thought. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I could see first of all I if I had been kind of you know with the agenda of finding that the feelings of of um being lost or abandoned or uh left out I would have probably found them but missed this beautiful expansive feeling of love and this sense of sappy this is sappy you know that was that was and and what I recognized in that was that The depression was kind of around a repression or uh, an unhealthful relationship to this expansive feeling of love. So I never would have thought love would have been under there. Never would have expected that. So, whew, just by opening to what's here, what's here, what's here. So it's more gentle, no way. But thank you for the question, it's beautiful. And we need to stop, so... Thank you. Just a quick question for you. Um, do you want more on the hindrances? Or, um, yes? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do a little bit more, in a little bit more depth, particularly I think around sense desire and ill will. Those are really, there's a lot to say about those two. And reframing, because with those, often we have you know, it's like, we don't want to let go of our sense desire. You know, it's like, it feels so bereft if we do that. And so there's ways to reframe and to understand the teaching so that it's not about pushing it away. So I want to, I want to bring that in. So. Okay, I'll see you next week.